Welcome to the KSTE Farm Hour. Here's KSTE's farmer Fred, Fred Hoffman. California's farmers will be on the receiving end of a big economic hit if the U.S. government doesn't provide relief from the proposed agricultural tariffs threatened by China, Canada, Mexico, and Europe. We have the latest from Washington. California's pear harvest will be down this year, but prices for the crop? They're going up. Wild pigs are back in the news, and there's a move afoot at the state capitol to increase the hunting of these major farm pests. Processing tomatoes are a major crop in our area, and the local farm advisor who has overseen the changes in this industry over the decades is retiring. We have a conversation with Gene Miao, who talks about the innovations of growing tomatoes in the Sacramento area over the last 40 years. All that, crop reports, and a lot more on this week's KSTE Farm Hour. Let's get started. California's farmers supported the election of Donald Trump throughout the Central Valley. Now, the Trump trade policies have California's farmers very worried. The New York Times reports renewed trade-related tensions with China put a spotlight on how quickly political tides can shift. The unpredictability of the Trump administration's policy with China has already worried farmers across the state, many of whom voted for Mr. Trump and grow staple products like almonds and pistachios that are targeted for tariffs. In 2016, California exported $2 billion in agricultural products to China, which is the state's third biggest foreign market for farm goods. As the tariff tug-of-war heats up, what are the plans in Washington for relief for California's farmers? Rod Bain has the details. Considered for a while now as a countermeasure against retaliatory tariffs on U.S. agricultural exports. The president has charged me with coming up with a mitigation plan, meaning a compensation plan for farmers that are damaged by trade disruptions. Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue telling reporters in Chicago Tuesday that such a mitigation plan continues to be developed in what he calls a dynamic process. As nations like China, Canada, Mexico, and the European Union announce or have announced product they may target in retaliation for recent U.S. proposed tariffs on items ranging from foreign-produced steel and aluminum and related products made from such. Based on where the markets are, what happens on a daily basis, how do you determine what the usual ups and downs of the market are versus what the trade disruption to cause it. In the ongoing U.S.-Chinese trade dispute, for instance, the first wave of retaliatory tariffs from both nations are set to take effect in early July. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. California is expecting a lighter fresh pear crop this year. It's down 16.5% from last year's final count. The Capitol Press reports the California Pear Advisory Board is forecasting a 2018 crop of 2.5 million 36-pound boxes. That's down from 3 million last year. Walnut Grove and Cortland, the pear region of the Sacramento River Delta, had an abundance of pears last year, and they're lighter this year due to insufficient winter chill and then a freeze and then hot weather right before the bloom, and that impeded pollination. Fire blight also is more prolific again, particularly on the stark crimson variety. Another big issue, the lack of available labor. That according to Sacramento County Farm Advisor Chuck Engels. Uh, yeah, labor is a huge problem, especially for pears, which require so much labor for harvest and, and uh, various practices through the year. And the, the cost is going up. The availability is going down. It just becomes really difficult to grow pears or, or will as time goes on because of these labor problems. This year's forecast is for 2 million Bartlett pears. Mostly Bosque pears will make up the remaining 500,000 boxes, followed by Red Star Crimson, Red Bartlett, Seckle, Sunsprite, Taylor's Gold, and others. 
Harvest will start around July 9th in Walnut Grove with the Sunsprite variety. Bartlett and red pears will begin harvest the following week. There is good news. Fruit should be cleaner, meaning less marked and larger in size, peaking at about 90 pears per box instead of an average of about 100 last year. Opening wholesale prices should be pretty good as well, getting about $30 or more per box. That's up from the high 20s of last year. Why the increase in price? Because less volume tends to make better prices. The eyes are 213, the nays are 211. The bill is passed. The farm bill passes the House on a second try after going down to defeat back in May when some lobbyists withheld their support until votes on immigration reform were taken. The House did vote on some immigration measures earlier in the day. So now, what's next for the farm bill? The Senate version, of course, awaiting floor action. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell had outlined a tentative schedule. We'll turn to the farm bill before the 4th of July. And with House passage of its bill, McConnell says that should... Give us a chance to get into conference tonight actually make a law here, which is what I know we're all intensely interested in doing. As the Senate plunged into the Farm Bill process Wednesday, Senators were pressing Ag Committee Chairman Pat Roberts for their amendments and concerns to get on the long list of amendments to be voted on. Hopefully the amendments will be without controversy. But by late afternoon, there were some that might fall into that category. For example, Pennsylvania Congressman Pat Toomey pushing a provision that says if a president wants to invoke tariffs in the name of national security... He could do so as long as he has the assent from Congress. But not on his own. Other amendments included bringing back the controversial proposed GYPSA rules designed to protect contract growers, and there were scores of others being proposed. Pat Roberts said they're doing their best to work with everybody. But at some point, Mr. President, we have to pass this bill. The goal is to try to get it passed by close of business this Friday. Indiana's Joe Donnelly said a farm bill is vital to producers who need certainty. And we need to ensure we do our part to get it across the finish line. In Washington, Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. The November ballot promises to be a time-consuming document. And there's another initiative that has qualified for the ballot. It's aimed to expand living space for egg-laying hens, pigs, and calves. The Sacramento Bee reports that the ballot measure builds on the passage of Proposition 2. That's a 2008 initiative that prohibited California's farmers from housing pregnant pigs, calves raised for veal, and egg-laying hens in cages or crates that don't allow them to turn around freely. The new initiative offers greater details by setting explicit standards for animal confinement. According to the initiative, by 2022, egg-laying hens would need to be placed in cage-free housing. Breeding pigs and calves raised for veal would also be required to have more space, 24 and 43 square feet of floor space respectively. The U.S. Humane Society is the primary backer of this initiative. And how much will this cost the taxpayers? Well, an analysis from the nonpartisan Legislative Analyst Office estimates the state would face up to $10 million in potential costs in order to enforce this measure. Sacramento Valley Olive Day is coming up. It's this Friday, July 6th. It'll be held in Orland at 131 East Walker Street, building number four, from 8 a.m. to noon. Topics will include weed control, disease management, and olive fly. For more information, contact the UC Cooperative Extension Office in Woodland. Good and plenty available for consumers. That is how Lance Honig of USDA's National Agricultural Statistics Service described this year's U.S. sweet cherry crop. Although... We're expecting our sweet cherry crop to be a little bit down from last year, actually. 320,000 tons. It's 26.1% below what was produced last year, but last year was a really big crop. 
He adds most U.S. sweet cherry production is found on the West Coast, and for those states... The sweet cherries, Washington's really the big leader in production there. Overall, we're seeing the reduction in the crop from last year. Oregon, another key producer there. Weather during pollination, not ideal this season. and That's kind of what's pushing some of that production expectation down from last year. With producers in the Pacific Northwest concerned about the extent of fruit drop in early varieties through harvest. Meanwhile, California cherry growers were impacted by a warm winter, followed by damaging February frost and heavy March rains. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Here's this week's California crop report. Safflower is blooming in the Sacramento Valley. Garbanzo beans are being harvested. In Tulare County, wheat for grain continues to be harvested. Wheat for straw was baled. Corn for silage was tasseling. Alfalfa and cotton continues to be irrigated. Grapes were developing well. Stone fruit orchards and pruning of stone fruit is ongoing. Peaches, nectarines, and apricots were harvested. Cherry harvest is wrapping up for the season. Valencia orange harvest is ongoing. Some citrus trees are being planted while older trees are being trimmed and skirted. Almonds, walnuts, and pistachio orchards are being irrigated right now. Pesticides and fungicides were applied to some almond groves. Weed control continues. Tomatoes are fruiting in Sutter County. Cucumbers, eggplant, pepper, squash, and tomatoes were harvested down in Tulare County. Lettuce continues to be harvested along the central coast. Rangeland and non-irrigated pasture was rated to be in poor to fair condition in the lower elevations of California. Rangeland conditions were better at higher elevations. Some cattle were moved to those higher elevation ranges. Sheep grazed on retired cropland. Bees are active in sunflower fields. Take the KSTE Farm Hour with you wherever you go. It's available at KSTE.com or the iHeartRadio app in streaming mode, or you can download it from your favorite third-party podcast aggregator, such as iTunes. We're talking with Gene Meow. He's a longtime woodland-based farm advisor. He specializes in many crops, especially tomatoes, and he's been doing it for a long time, since 1980. Well, the time has come. It's retirement time for Gene Meow. And Gene, you've been involved with processing tomatoes your whole life. What changes have you seen in the way tomatoes are, are grown and harvested here? Now, well, many, many advances uh, over the years. I said uh, I started Started in 1980 with the university. I wasn't ar- around in the time when there was a transition from uh, hand harvesting to uh, to the mechanized harvesting. I was a youngster at that time, uh, still in grade school, and many changes involved with that. But there, there's always improvements happening in the industry, and I'm uh, I was fortunate to be around growers and uh, industry folks that were wanting to improve. Uh, production, increased efficiency. So what, what sort of changes have I seen? Well, in my time, there were mostly, uh, it was all directly field seeding. And then we started slowly transitioning to, to using greenhouse-grown transplants. So planting these little uh, seedlings uh, into the field. And now there's hardly anyone uh, directly uh, field seeding. And it's amazing to me to watch uh, in the day when there were so many cars with uh, workers going out to, uh, on these mechanical tomato harvesters, but they had big crews uh, in the field at harvest time. And now there's not that many folks uh, involved with at least the hand sorting of tomatoes uh, on the mechanical harvester. And it's been the flip of that that uh, now we're seeing 
so many cars and, and folks uh, at transplanting time because it's all required machines, but uh, hand labor, laborers are feeding these machines, individual plants, handling every plant is being handled by a person and he's feeding the machine. I would think, too, that one of the big advances you've seen would have been going from flood irrigation to drip irrigation. Absolutely. Uh, that that has been a major. Uh, in the day when uh, there was so much, uh, well, it was more or less exclusively uh, furrow irrigated, and there'd be some growers who would be on uh, using sprinklers season long, or at least many of them, to germinate the, the, the little uh, seed that was planted in the soil. But drip irrigation, especially the movement to buried semi-permanent systems, has been a game changer. Increased yields, increased irrigation efficiency, reduced some of the weed problems as well, because the soils have been, uh, surface at least has been drier. Uh, in my day, I thought uh, I thought the introduction of uh, drip irrigation would be kind of minimal, especially for us in the northern part of the state, where we were had been at least uh, uh, water rich. The water was plentiful and cheap, relatively cheap. I thought um, drip would not take hold at that, but we certainly learned that drip irrigation has provided greater control of uh, the irrigation and, and therefore increased uh, yield fairly dramatically. The other thing that's happened is that uh, we really have to uh, salute uh, the many tomato plant breeders that they've done a remarkable job and are continuing to improve our variety uh, yield uh, across the state as well as fruit quality for the for the processors. So we've made uh, quite a steady growth relatively um, because of uh, because of these technological changes, the variety improvement, drip irrigation, our harvesters have become uh, kind, of, kind of they're similar, but uh, there certainly have been improvements in our our harvest efficiency and you know, a very very progressive uh, group of growers and support industries. So I'm blessed to work in uh, amongst these folks that provide uh, plenty of feedback and stimulate. Uh, research ideas and are willing to cooperate, anxious to cooperate. There are some growers who've, uh, uh, who've even asked and said, uh, asked the, why I haven't returned to their farms in, in, in recent years to conduct more research and are, so, so, you know, are very inviting. And having that kind of, uh, inquisitive growers and progressive growers made my job so much, so much easier. Probably one of the bigger changes you've seen in your career is, is yield per acre. I would think that back when you were a youngster, the yield might have been for processing tomatoes 25 tons per acre, maybe up to 35 tons in the 70s. What is the yield per acre now? So the average uh, uh, yield per acre is uh, it has uh, come right up to uh, an approaching 50 tons uh, per acre, and you're correct. It's, uh, it's doubled since... Uh, since the early 60s when 25 tons or so was the, was the norm. And, and we've seen uh, in, in some fields, uh, I mean, there's still challenges, environmental challenges, uh, 
as we've seen last year in 2017 when it had such extended high temperature uh, periods, not just during the day, but uh, not cooling off much in the night, that uh, they're pretty brutal. These environmental influences still have a great impact uh, on our crop production. But we've, uh, we know that our varieties are, are capable of, uh, of 100 tons per acre. But there are many challenges along the way, and we've seen uh, fields where some growers are getting uh, a 70 tons, 80 tons per acre, and they're uh, uh, eye-opening. So there's uh, still a lot of uh, headroom to to improve, uh, knowing that there are these environmental challenges uh, and other challenges to uh, uh, achieving you know, 100 tons per acre. I, I think. Uh, it drives uh, these growers and, uh, and the industry forward. They want to improve uh, just agronomically as well as uh, you know, keep pace economically. There's, there's a lot of pride uh, within our industry. That speaks well for, for all of us involved, I think. One area that you were an early adapter of and a big proponent of that people should know about is uh, your promotion of cover cropping. Yeah, oh, well, well, uh, uh, thank you. I, I think, you know, Fred, um, when, when I first started uh, as an advisor in 1980, the, the old-time advisors, the veteran advisors in our office uh, that were working with crops uh, were very familiar with uh, with these uh, cover crops. So it's not a new practice, you know, that uh, cover cropping. Uh, but I, I was ignorant about it. But I think what, what's, uh, what's a, a driver, I think, in the system is that we need to try to ha- add diversity uh, to the crop mix and to the rotation, and cover crops is, is one means of doing that. That also uh, leads into sort of some of the new frontiers, and, and for me in this job, that hopefully those uh, younger advisors and assessors in in our uh, cooperative extension system that. You know, exploring what's happening underground and uh, the soil microbial communities, taking advantage of uh, new technologies, as well as thinking about softer pest control approaches. Yeah, I, I think that kind of uh, exploration is going to continue. Um, I, I, I think about, you know, I think about the few times I've seen my lifetime that and there's fewer opportunities for that but uh, when they occur it's eye-opening to me to see some ground that has never had tomatoes on it the virgin soils maybe some of them that uh, there's very few of those ones in our valley uh, on our valley floor that haven't been cultivated when there are truly those uh, virgin soils that didn't have these native plants growing but when they get cultivated and put the tomatoes on for the very first time, there's something um, magical occurring. They're they're more robust. They're they're more productive. They're healthier. So in our process of a crop production, we're disturbing something. We're uh, adding something. We're taking away something. But we're making these changes and. You know, these scientists studying what those additions, takeaways, disturbance are, I wish I was the discoverer of that. That would be just tremendous. But someone, someone's going to get closer to it, I, I believe. Uh, that's going to be exciting for, for many of us, for the producers, for the researchers, for many. 
There's one more area I want to take up with you. There, there, there's an old saying in radio, help people on their way up because they just might be helping you on your way down. And in your statement in the Tomato Info newsletter for June, when you're talking about your career, the, the first thing you do is you praise and mention all of those who mentored you on your way up and how important mentoring is, how important it is to pass down the knowledge of what you've learned so that the same mistakes aren't made over and over again. Yeah, yeah. And I, I'm, I'm very grateful for the many folks that took their time and went out of, out of really out of their way to uh, to help me. I mean, many, many, and uh, and it's continued. Uh, and I really thank my father who opened up my eyes and said, my father wasn't uh, particularly a smart man. He wasn't uh, that intelligent, and he told me this with some frequency and uh, almost as a friendly lecture. And he told me that you know if I paid attention, I could. Everyone has something special that they know and if you're listening carefully enough and can weed out some of this you're, you're going to learn from uh, people and, and I've done my best uh, I didn't have to do much weeding out because uh, uh, there were uh, a lot of uh, generous and uh, folks uh, in my path I recognized that early on and, uh, and uh, so grateful uh, to, to uh, so, so many folks yeah, especially when they weren't going to get uh, much of a return uh, for a long time period, if they ever did at all. So isn't that isn't that remarkable? And and I guess the lesson for me is that uh, uh, I I hope that uh, I'll be around to help mentor what I hope will be my uh, my successor. Now, even though your retirement luncheon is coming up, I have a funny feeling you won't be retiring because a they haven't found your replacement yet. And B, I can't see you walking away from the job on a permanent basis. <laughs> Very good. Uh, no, I'm uh, I'm best in our organization, and uh, we want to see uh, uh, the replacements and, uh, and new advisors succeed. And if I can, uh, I don't want to be in the way, certainly, but uh, if I can uh, help them, I certainly want to do that. And those many growers who. Uh, uh, have helped me along the way. I uh, I don't want to make it feel like abandonment, uh, which I don't want to do. Uh, and we want to get uh, a person uh, in place and uh, uh, up, up running. He's been advising farms in Solano, Sacramento, and Yolo County since 1980, vegetable crops, processing tomatoes in particular. Gene Meow, farm advisor. Coming up to retirement, but what he's learned and what he's passing on to others will be with us forever. Gene Meow, thank you for your service to our area's farmers. Thank you very much, Fred. Thanks, thanks for your time. Wild pigs are back in the news. The Sacramento Bee is reporting there's a bill working its way through the Assembly and the State Senate, which would change the status of California's wild pigs. They would no longer be a game species regulated similar to deer, elk, and bear. They'd have their own category. The change would allow farmers to kill pigs without a hunting license, or what's known as depredation permits, what the state's wildlife agency normally issues when game animals damage property. California hunters report killing fewer than 5,000 wild pigs each year, a fraction of the state's feral hog population, which is estimated to be somewhere between 200,000 and 400,000. California has its fair share of feral pigs, 
The state has the fourth largest population of wild pigs in the country behind Texas, Florida, and Georgia. Meanwhile, feral pigs are causing California's farmers and ranchers around $2 million in damage annually. That according to an analysis by the Assembly's Water, Parks, and Wildlife Committee. We're talking with Roger Baldwin. He's a UC Cooperative Extension Wildlife Specialist with the Department of Wildlife, Fish, and Conservation Biology. And Roger, wild pigs are really a big problem here in California, aren't they, for ranchers and farmers? They sure are. They they cause a tremendous amount of damage in a variety of different ways, um, whether it's their rooting activity uh, in rangeland areas, which can reduce forage for for livestock, uh, it, it um, opens up opportunities for invasive weeds to get established. Uh, they can foul water sources, uh, leading to um, potential uh, uh, water safety concerns. Um, we see increased erosion from pigs in certain areas. And then, of course, if we get into agricultural production areas, then we're lo- looking at uh, losses in crop production, as well as potential food safety concerns from E. coli uh, contamination. So lots of lots of concerns when it comes to wild pigs. You have been conducting a survey of garnering information from uh, farmers and ranchers where there may have been wild pig damage. What are the areas of California where they are most intrusive? Uh, pigs are found pretty much throughout a large swaths of the state. I think they're now found in all but one county of California. But yeah, you're certainly correct that there are certain areas where we see more common problems with pigs. These include some of the uh, north coast areas uh, extending you know, from Mendocino down through Sonoma County, Marin, uh, some of those areas are kind of hot spots for pigs and pig damage, as well as some of the central coast areas, particularly Monterey, San Luis Obispo counties, and in, in, in that general area. And then over in the, the foothills of the Sierras as well, uh, Fresno, Tulare's, um, some of those counties in through the central part of the state also have pretty high pig populations. Talk a little bit about the history of the wild pig in California, how it got here, how it got loose, and what it's been doing. Well, uh, they've been here for a while now. Uh, I don't know that anybody is still completely certain how they all got established. There are several competing theories. Uh, One is simply that they were intentionally released in certain areas so that they could just forage naturally um, and then uh, be harvested whenever needed. Uh, some believe they may have just been uh, pigs that escaped and got established in certain areas. And then, you know, in the early 1900s, there's the belief that, um, you know, Russian or Eurasian boars were brought over here and released in certain areas to provide hunting opportunities. And this seems to be particularly prevalent over in some of the central coast areas where we see more of that Russian or Eurasian boar in the uh, general bloodlines over there. But of course, through the years, there's been a tremendous amount of mingling um, between uh, feral um, pigs and, and the Eurasian boars that have been released in, in certain areas. What sort of damage can they do to to a farm, and, and how big are these critters? Well, um, like, like I said, there's a variety of different kinds of damage that they can cause. Um, their general rooting activity can be damaging. If we're talking about you know farm production areas, they can root up cover crops that are planted. Uh, they can root up the crops themselves, particularly if we're talking about uh, leafy greens and certain vegetable crops. They can damage irrigation structures. Um, 
for it uh, in areas like uh, with, with certain crops like almonds, where they harvest and then shake the trees and then have the nuts fall down and then scoop them up. Uh, we see problems with pig wallowing. They'll they'll find um, wet areas and at um, following irrigation and wallowing cre- create these depressions that the nuts then all get trapped down into and can't get sucked up properly through some of their harvesting equipment. So we see some of those kinds of damage. Uh, for some of the tree crops, they'll actually break down branches of the trees to get at fruits and nuts on those trees. Um, so that's just one other kind of damage that we see. I'm sorry, what was the other question there? What is the size of these animals? Size of pigs, yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, 100 to 200 pounds. Um, 200 pounds is, is getting pretty good size for, for pigs here in California, but they do occasionally get a little bit larger than that. Uh, so you can have pretty good sized pigs. Now, isn't I heard that possibly the source of an E. coli outbreak in California spinach fields may be attributed to wild pigs. Yeah, that was related back to an incident in 2006 where um, pigs got out into, like you said, to, to some spinach fields in, in the Salinas Valley. And that was um, a big concern at that time. It led to some very substantial uh, changes in how um, particularly leafy grains are managed uh, with respect to keeping out wildlife, and it may have led to some pretty extreme changes in in um, habitat management on adjacent spinach fields, uh, increased use of fencing and, and other management tools like that. Um, so it led to a pretty stark landscape for for wildlife in those areas, and some of that has been rolled back since that time because they found that you know really a lot of those changes didn't provide a lot of potential benefit and, and were somewhat damaging to the landscape out there. But you know, pigs do carry a lot of different diseases, and and they certainly uh, can carry things like um, E. coli in fecal matter too. And so there's a real big concern of, of keeping pigs out of those those certain areas. Are there problems with wild pigs spreading disease to domesticated pigs? Yeah, so there is a real concern there. Pigs carry a variety of different diseases. I think it's it's over 30 different documented diseases that, that pigs can carry. And a lot of those can be um, transmitted to, to domestic wildlife, whether it's um, pseudo-rabies, uh, leptospirosis, brucellosis, um, variety of different diseases, and some of those can be um, potentially transmitted to humans as well. So there are a lot of this, those concerns. Pigs are, are pretty smart critters, and I would think that if one wants to fence them out of rangeland or a farm, that it would have to be a pretty special fence because they'd find a way to get under the fence. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. Fencing pigs out is, is a very challenging proposition. They're very strong. They're a very smart animal. Uh, they can figure things out quite easily. And so um, fencing is used to some extent to keep pigs out of, of certain areas. Um, and it can be relatively successful, although a 100% um, pig-proof fence um, maybe hasn't been developed yet. Uh, a really determined pig can get into to certain areas. They do have to be maintained regularly because pigs will travel up and down those fences, and if they start to see an area of weakness in the fence, they can exploit that, whether it's something that they can, you know, maybe a wire's gotten a little bit loose at the bottom, and so they can kind of dig a little bit and, and crawl underneath it. Um, other cracks and, and places like that they might potentially be able to get through as well. Uh, so pigs are quite good at getting around a lot of those 
those fencing structures. But they, they can be effective to some extent at, at at least slowing movement of pigs into certain areas. Now, I know that pigs have been allegedly eradicated from places like Santa Cruz Island or Pinnacles National Park, but it, that was a rather expensive venture for a, a few feral pigs, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, pigs can be removed from certain areas if if the money is available to do so. But but you're right; it's absolutely very expensive to do so, and it's not necessarily getting the first. Um, I don't know, seventy or eighty percent of the pigs in an area. I mean, that's challenging enough, and it's expensive enough. But the real expense comes in getting those last few remaining pigs because they really wise up. They get to the point where it's essentially impossible to get them in traps. Um, they're very good at avoiding people out there who might um, be hunting, trying to remove pigs individually. And so it takes some pretty unique tools to be able to do that uh, to get those last few remaining pigs. Oftentimes, that includes the use of dogs to track pigs. Um, it might include the use of helicopters to fly around and, and try to spot pigs. Uh, they have another strategy called um, Judas pigs, where they will actually go and capture one pig in the sounder or a group of pigs, put a radio collar on that pig, and then let it go. And then they'll track that pig back to wherever it goes. And if it takes them back uh, to a group of, of other pigs, then they can can remove that whole group at a time. So it takes a variety of different tools to, to be able to get rid of um, the pigs in a particular area. And getting rid of those last very few pigs are what really is difficult and expensive. That's Roger Baldwin, UC Cooperative Extension Wildlife Specialist. We're talking about wild pigs and how to control them, which cause $1.5 billion in economic damage to agriculture in California every year. And according to Baldwin, they're rather aggressive creatures that can scare off your own domestic animals. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we see that around watering sources, um, feeders, things along those lines. Uh, they definitely think that um, they own that area and and will keep those other animals out until they're done utilizing that resource. And so uh, that can be problematic both from a rancher perspective, but also problematic for some of our native wildlife species, uh, which are not used to, to dealing with such an, uh, an overtly aggressive animal. I would think that because of their lack of sweat glands that they're attracted to pieces of property where there may be year-round standing water. Yeah, water is one of the real limiting resources for pigs. Um, it's it's the one, one of the key things that they absolutely have to have. And so whether we're talking about riparian areas, ponds, um, areas that um, supply water for livestock, etc., or, or irrigation in, in agricultural areas, um, these are resources that pigs will usually center around. They, you'll never find pigs too far away from a water source because it is absolutely imperative for them. Now, we talked about uh, the limits of excluding pigs from a, a, a piece of land. Uh, what are the other legal ways to control wild pigs? Well, pigs can um, be removed through depredation permits. So if you are a landowner who has um, pigs that are causing damage on the property, then you can contact California Department of Fish and Wildlife, um, explain the situation. They may or may not come out and assess the situation, and if they deem it appropriate, they'll issue you a depredation permit in which you can uh, then go out and remove pigs um, based on uh, whatever they provide.
provide whatever guidance they provide in that depredation permit. So it may be shooting, it may allow for the use of trapping, et cetera. Um, if you're in certain counties, wildlife services available is available uh, to assist with this. Um, they can go ahead and take care of, of some of the trapping and removal efforts for you. Certain counties also still have um, trappers that are hired by county agricultural commissioners um, to to go out and and take care of pig problems. And so those are are some potential options. Hunting is used to some extent to to help control pig populations. Hunting usually isn't enough to reduce populations um, so much, but they can be used to essentially move pigs off of property. So it, it won't solve the problem for everybody in the neighborhood, but it might solve the problem for a, a, lo- a local rancher. But usually when it comes to, to pigs, there's you know, not much else with um, respect to um, you know anything like along the lines of repellents or fertility drugs or even too much in the way of habitat manipulation that's going to be um, successful in, in eliminating problems with pigs. It's usually more of... Uh, or removing pigs from a certain area or, you know, fencing in, in some localized cases where um, it might be appropriate. Is the wild pig problem growing or is it static? Uh, yeah, the, the pig problem, we do believe, is, is a growing issue. Um, we've seen rapid expansion and increase in pig numbers over the last several decades. As I mentioned, we're now up to to pigs up in, in all but one county in, in the state. And so populations are expanding. Um, they're expanding not just in size, but in, in areas that they are occupying. Uh, so it is definitely an increasing problem. Now, I know last August that you sent out a re- request for information from landowners to ask if they have a wild pig problem in order for you to sort of target the areas where wild pigs are, are hap- inhabiting in California. Have you been getting some results back from those uh, landowners? Yeah, we've been getting some pretty good feedback so far. Um, we haven't actually... Um, begun our analysis on that project yet, uh, but we are looking for information pertaining to the amount of damage, the types of damage um, that pigs cause in a variety of different ran- ranching and agricultural landscapes. Um, we're also interested in how people perceive wild pigs. With wild pigs, we know that they cause a tremendous amount of damage in a variety of different situations, but it's a bit of a conundrum, too, because uh, wild pigs are also considered a game species here in California, and so a lot of people do like to hunt pigs. Um, there's a lot of revenue that is brought in from pig hunting uh, here in the state, so there are some potential benefits that the pigs provide, and, and there are a lot of reasons why some individuals in the state like having pigs. And so uh, it is a bit of a balancing act there when it comes to the potential um, harm they cause as well as some benefits that are provided for some individuals. Yeah, but then you see pictures like uh, you have posted on the UCANR uh, Wild Pigs page of, of wild pigs drinking and swimming in a cattle trough. <laughs> Absolutely, and so you get those kinds of interactions that that are real potential problems there, Uh, whether it be because they're excluding cattle from drinking water, um, utilizing some of those water resources, or probably, uh, more importantly, fouling the water and increasing the likelihood of disease transmittance between pigs and cattle. Um, There's a, a tremendous 
number of, of potential risks and hazards associated with having pigs in certain areas. You have a lot of great information online about wild pigs at the pest note on the UCANR page. If people just Google wild pigs UC, the letters UC, uh, I'm sure that page will pop up. And in the uh, research section at the bottom of that page, there's even information if, if people want to try to build a super duper fence to keep them out. Absolutely, yeah. There's lots of good information there, whether it be um, information for, for building a fence on how to keep them out, uh, for utilizing traps if you have a depredation permit to do so, and just some good general information on biology of wild pigs so you can have a better understanding of uh, how they move out there in the landscape, habitats that they like to use, how quickly they reproduce, etc. Lots of great information there. Wild pigs, they're destructive pests with voracious appetites, causing $1.5 billion in economic damage to agriculture and the environment in California every year. Roger Baldwin, UC Cooperative Extension Wildlife Specialist, thanks for a few minutes of your time today talking about wild pigs. Absolutely. Happy to help out. Thanks for listening to the KSTE Farm Hour. Heard every Sunday from noon until 1 p.m. Pacific Time and available anytime as a podcast. Download it at KSTE.com.